Welcome back to the table and we are jumping in today to our second uh, episode on the book of Revelation or I wish they I wish they uh, they titled it the unveiling of Jesus. I, I know it's the revelation of Jesus Christ and that is the title of the book. Uh, but this revelation unveils something. It takes something that was hidden and reveals it. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, When the law of Moses is read, a veil lays over their eyes. But when Christ is read or unveiled, the veil is removed. And so this book wasn't meant to keep us bound in condemnation and legalism and sin consciousness. And for those who don't understand what sin consciousness means, it means simply that all you can think about is you're not good enough, that God is good and you're not good enough. Rather than seeing yourself the way God sees you, which God sees you righteous, he sees you holy, he sees you blameless, and he sees you innocent. So this book is a book to remind us, to reveal to us, to unveil to us who we really are. And one of the themes of this book is the Lamb of God. We kind of ended the last episode on that theme after we talked about it's a book of signs and symbols that are pulled from the Jewish writings. We talked a little bit about, you know, the different genres of books of the Bible, poems, apocalyptic literature, prophetic literature, letters to friends. You can go back and listen to the first one uh, if you want to on this. But I want to start by talking about the Lamb of God. You know, we need to really see that this book is about a Lamb. It's about the Lamb Jesus who was slain from the foundation of the earth. He was slain to remove us from our blindness, to remove us uh, from our condemnation, to, to take us out of the alienation of our falling understanding about who God is. It is a book that reveals to us that Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us, but to change our mind about God. He didn't come to save us from the Father. He came to save us for the Father. And I want to start, and I'm going to jump all around in this book. I want to start in Revelation 12 and verse 10. And it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers or brethren has been thrown down who accuses us or accused them, it's past tense, accused them day and night before our God. Notice it doesn't say God accused us. This is really important because God never accused us. It was always the enemy of our soul. It was always the blinded, alienated, fallen mind that saw themselves as not good enough that accuses us before God to say that we are not going to be able to approach him, that he would reject us, that he wasn't a good father. So I want to kind of paraphrase this verse in this way. And then I heard a very loud voice in the heavens announcing this is the moment which the entire prophetic word pointed to and culminates in. It is the realization of mankind's salvation. The power of the kingdom of our God and its authority is endorsed in the I amness of his Christ. The business of accusation is bankrupted 
the 24-7 religious industry and fallen mentality of condemning everyone and mankind before, their fa- before the face of God has been annihilated. And then in Revelation 22.10, and, and pardon me as I'm taking a minute here to do this, believe it or not, I have an old school Bible out. You remember those? The ones that you actually used to have to turn the pages to get to it. I know it's so much easier to just do it on our phone, but for some reason, when I read the book of Revelation, I like to turn the pages. It's just a thing that I like to do. Every now and then, it's nice to kind of pick up a book. It's nice to actually get a letter in the mail. Uh, but Revelation 22.10 says this. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. So he's saying not to seal it, it up in some conversation that's in the future. Or we're always looking at the, the book of Revelation as some future thing. It's about the end. It's way out there. It doesn't really apply to us. Maybe a little bit of it does because we may be on as people have viewed it on this like prophetic timetable. And so like chapter one and two may apply to us, but then the rest of it, like the end of the book, don't really apply to us now. And nothing could be farther from the truth. Like I said, that this is a book that declares the scandalous, the grace, the amazing love and revelation of God. It's a book that talks about the Lamb. And what's interesting here is, you know, when he looks in in the book and he, he says he sees the seven seals and he sees a lion there and it's uh, basically in union with the one who's on the throne and the four living beings and they're in center stage in the midst of the elders. And it says, I saw a little lamb alive and standing as though it appeared to have been violently butchered in sacrifice. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to accomplish his bidding in all the earth. And so in the midst of this heavenly drama, this, you know, creatures and wild, I mean, things our minds can't even imagine that are in heaven. These, you know, heavenly beings, angels, you know, all this activity around the throne. John sees this lamb, this little lamb slain as if it had been butchered, but it's alive. It's speaking of in the midst of heaven and all the drama of heaven. You know, we, you go to the bookstore and you look up books on like angels, you'll find a ton of them. And people are enamored with all the stuff like that, that goes on in heaven. But what's being center, what's being brought into focus and the centerpiece of, of John's message here is that the lamb is there and not just a lamb, not just like any lamb. And remember it's signs and symbols. So what it's actually speaking of is Jesus, because John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So in heaven, there's a slain lamb who's been resurrected and seated forever in the midst of the council of heaven. And what that declared is that God's mind about you is completely innocent. He sees you as perfect. You are the apple of his eye, the joy of his being. You are the love of his desire. You are the the first and the foremost thought that he has is about you. And when he sees you, he sees you righteous and holy and perfect. He is your father and you are his son. 
in Revelation 5, 6, and also in Zechariah 3, 9, it says, For behold, upon the stone which I've set before Joshua, upon a single stone with seven facets, or could speak of eyes, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, I will remove the guilt of the earth in a single day. That's absolutely powerful. That in a day, what was that day? What was the day that God removed the guilt of the earth? The day in which God removed the guilt of the earth was the day in which Jesus was on the cross and he declares it is finished. It's the same day that Jesus declares to uh, that one thief on the cross with him, today you will be with me in paradise. It is the prophetic fulfillment of what Jesus spoke in his earthly walk when he says, woman, where are thou accusers? Neither do I accuse you. It is the same day that Jesus said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were ransomed from the, futil- from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Another way to look at that is it is clear to see that you are ransomed from the, the feudal fallen mindset that you inherited from Adam, not by the currency of your own labor, not by the uh, efficacy of your own works, not by the represented by the values of gold and silver and silver and gold, their value has went up and down. And that's what it's speaking about. And that day, silver was more valuable than gold is today. And so it's talking about that there is no economy that could have made you redeemed from that lie other than Jesus. And that you were redeemed with a priceless blood that he is the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice, that there will never be another sacrifice, the book of Hebrews talks about. A spotless, and it is without blemish. There's no dilution in it. It's not diluted grace. It is pure, straightforward, 100% octane grace and love of God, that he completes this prophetic picture. That in God, he speaks of the most radical scapegoat language that the law of judgment could have ever brought. And he brings it to a final closure to bring a dead and redundant system to an end. And he clearly states that God doesn't require sacrifices and offerings. Where is that familiar? It's in the Psalms. He says he desires mercy over those things. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. The, he, he literally takes this victorious grace and love and collides it with a sacrificial system whereby he enters into that system not to, be, uh, not to receive the judgment of the Father, but to receive the judgment of those things to remove them out of the way so we never look through life and life with God through that lens ever again. God is not a monster, a moody personality with a vindictive imagination. No, he's a loving a loving father who desires to share his heart with us. This is the scandal of the cross. That God doesn't demand a sacrifice that would change the way he thinks about us. He provides a sacrifice in order to forever eradicate the way we think about him, to destroy the sin consciousness we have, to radically change the way we think about God, our maker, one another, and ourself. 
to take away the sin consciousness, like I've said multiple times, which is basically the essence of a works-based relationship with God. God didn't clothe Adam with the skin of an animal for a need to be divinely appeased. No, we did that because we believe God was like that. No, God wasn't speaking the language of Adam's judgment that he was ju embarrassed about his nakedness. The clothing wasn't to make God look at Adam differently or to make, it actually was to make Adam feel better about himself and who was the originator of that. Man was, not God. So this is a prophetic picture of the lamb, the mystery of mankind's redemption, of the incarnation, that God desires to clothe us not with the, the clothing of sacrifices of human effort, but the deity of the righteousness of God in God's own glory. That the Lion of Judah would become the Lamb of God in order to free our minds to rediscover that we carry his image and likeness. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul makes a really bold and radical statement um, <clears throat> talking about ministry and knowing the full scope and consequence of the revelation of mankind's innocence on the cross that's communicated in Jesus. He says that this is the essence of the mystery. He writes, my mind is fully made up about you. The only way in which we can truly know ourselves is in the light of God's mystery. What is the mystery? Colossians 1 and 27. It was Christ in you, the hope of glory. It was the incarnation. It was a mystery hidden in ages and generations, but has been known to us that God would demonstrate his love for us on a cross and bring a final closure to all of our understandings of judgment. The word to know is the word crino, which means to judge, to determine. It's talking about like a forensic uh, investigation. It means for us to finally understand that the Lamb of God sits in heaven. So this book, when it speaks about a heavenly reality and it's talking about this picture of a lamb in heaven, we have to remember that God sees the lamb, that all mankind is wrapped up in the lamb, all of our restoration, all of our reconciliation, all of our redemption. So when Paul says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation to make on earth as it is in heaven to declare this gospel, this good news, what we're declaring is that all of our judgments, all of our failures, all of our sin, all of the way we see ourselves was completely wrong, but God has forever brought an end to the way we see ourselves. And if we want to see ourselves truly, we have to look into a mirror and the mirror is Jesus. As Paul says, as we behold him as in a mirror, we are transformed. So if we want to live a transformed life, we have to have the perspective of heaven. Paul said, I'm persuaded that one died for all, therefore all have died. That the love of Christ resonates within us and leaves us with only one conclusion, that Jesus died mankind's death. So therefore, in God's logic, and you can listen to one of my episodes before on the logic of God, every individual has simultaneously died. So the Lamb of God speaks of so much more than just the end of the world and this thing that would happen. No, when was the Lamb slain? This also gives us a hope that this isn't just a futuristic book. And sure, there's future implications to it. But the prophetic foundation of the book finds its grounding in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is a book to remind us of not only who Jesus is, but who we are.
I hope this has uh, been an encouragement to you. I'll probably uh, talk about the throne of God next time because I think it's absolutely important. And I'll give you a little hint to maybe make you want to listen that the throne is not a throne at all, but rather a cross. It's a mercy seat. So uh, like us on Facebook at the table, share with a friend, rate us on Spotify, and hey, and hit subscribe or follow. Uh, that way you can keep up with these recordings. Um, I know I went a little over today and I'm feeling like I need to on some of these. I'm not going to go too long, uh, but I just am so encouraged by everything I'm getting from all of you and hearing and the comments and uh, I love all of you.